Welcome to Tanakh Daily, a Congregation Ahavas Torah initiative. Today, we are studying the most well-known parak in the Sefer, one of the most iconic in all of Tanakh, parak Yud Ches of Sefer Malachim. After the formative experiences for Eliyahu Hanavi in the last chapter, and with the nation suffering terribly from three years of crippling drought, Hashem finally says, enough is enough, Eliyahu, go to King Ahav and end the drought. We learn upon Eliyahu's return that things in the, uh, in the country and the nation have gone from bad to worse, while Eliyahu was in hiding, was in seclusion, with Izevel systematically killing off the Nevi'ah Hashem, systematically killing the prophets of God, trying to rid the, the land of its monotheistic beliefs, of its faith in Torah and mitzvot and the Israelite religion. But we also learn about Ovadiahu. He is uh, a servant uh, one of the uh, kind of right-hand men to King Ahav, and he is a God-fearing individual. He secretly, uh, despite this campaign to eradicate all of the Nevi'ah Hashem, he saves a hundred prophets, hiding them in a cave and providing them with food and drink. Upon Eliyahu's return, he encounters Obadiahu, who happens to be out searching for water, and he, Eliyahu, tells him, Obadiahu, to go to Ahav and to tell him that Eliyahu has returned. And this sparks a very long-winded response from Ovadiahu. He expresses his concern that if he goes to Ahav uh, and Eliyahu just kind of disappears, uh, then, uh, then Ahav is going to be extremely upset at Ovadiahu for having let Eliyahu go, right? Because Ovadiahu uh, tells Eliyahu, we've been searching up and down this country uh, for you, Eliyahu. Eliyahu is, of course, the most wanted man in the land. And if Ovadiahu has a chance to capture him now and he doesn't, uh, he would be punished accordingly. At the same time, Ovadiahu tells Eliyahu that he, he tells him what, what, the, what the text already um, kind of foreshadowed and, and told us earlier, uh, that he, I saved a hundred prophets, meaning, you know, I'm sympathetic uh, to your side of things, Eliyahu, but you're putting me in an impossible situation. That's what he's basically telling Eliyahu. I don't know what to do. So he's torn. And Eliyahu swears that he's not going to disappear. Go and tell Ahav that I'm going to meet with him today. And uh, Ovadiahu ultimately puts his faith in Eliyahu that he's not just going to disappear. And he goes and he informs King Ahav. Now, just pausing here for a moment, it's reasonable to ask why this exchange receives such a lengthy treatment in the text. Right? What about this you know, previously unknown Ovadiahu is so important that uh, the, the, the Sefer, that Yermiyahu, uh, saw it fit, right? that the author of the Sefer saw it fit to, to expend so much time on this pretty insignificant, seemingly insignificant encounter. And I think here, Rabbi Alex Israel is, is right on target when he explains that Ovadiahu is, is not important in and of himself as an individual, but he symbolizes something very important. Ovadiahu, in this encounter with Eliyahu, embodies the kind of tension and the conflict that the entire nation felt at this moment. On the one hand, Ovadiahu was loyal to King Ahav and Izevel. Right? Being in his position meant that he must have been at least on board with, with much of their broad vision for the nation, but he was also clearly sympathetic to Eliyahu and devoted to God with a capital G. So he's being pulled in two directions, and I think that that's just a, meant to be a kind of window into the psyche of the entire nation at this moment. Okay, now we get to the really exciting part of the parak. Ahav and Eliyahu meet. They exchange some fighting words. Ahav says, oh, is it really you, the, the troubler of Israel? That's how he refers to Eliyahu. And Eliyahu, very brazenly, speaking to a king, he says, oh, I'm not the troubler of Israel. Actually, it's you and your father who are the troublers of Israel because you have forsaken 
the commandments of Hashem. And now Eliyahu throws down the gauntlet. He says, gather up the entire nation to Har HaKarmel, to the mountain, mountain of Carmel, and bring 450 of your prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, bring them all there. And he's, he's challenging him to, uh, and, his, and these Nevi'im to uh, a kind of a religious duel. Let's, let's settle this once and for all. Let's, let's each appeal to our gods and, uh, and let the entire nation watch. And uh, we'll, we'll see who's the real, who is the real um, Hashem. So the entire nation, who is the real God, right? Not, not the real Hashem, right? Who's the real God? Uh, is it Baal, Asherah, or is it um, HaKadosh Baruch Eliyahu then, well, the entire nation then gathers up, gathers around Har Carmel. We have this massive spectacle taking place. And Eliyahu, before anything even gets started, he, he utters the famous words to the nation, Ad Masai Atem Poschem Al How long will you uh, jump between two opinions or two, there's a few different ways of uh, translating the phrase, but the point is, how long are you going to, um, you know, uh, not fully commit to one side or the other, right? He says, Im Hashem ha'elokim l'chu acharav, bim ha'ba'al l'chu acharav. Right? He says, if, if the Lord is God, so follow him, and if Baal, and if you think it's Baal, then follow him. But you can't, you can't have it both ways. And it reflects the fact that the nation is engaged in what we call syncretism, practicing two different belief systems and faiths at once, merging them together. It's not that the nation has completely turned their back on Hashem altogether, but they view, you know, Hashem is maybe the the chief god in a pantheon, or maybe he's the god of Israel, but there are other gods out there. Um, They're they're mixing and matching between a a faith in Baal and a faith in, uh, in, in God. And Eliyahu says, that can't be. It's one or the other. You can't, you know, go to shul on Shabbos morning and then in the afternoon, a little Baal worship. That's not how it works. And so Eliyahu tells the nation, let these 450 prophets, uh, you know, let's, let's choose two calves that, and they can pick whichever one they want and let them sacrifice to Baal. I'll sacrifice to God and we'll see which one is accepted. And he gives Nevi'e Habal uh, kind of the first, uh, the, the first turn here. And he says, you, you go ahead. And they start feverishly working. And, and the, the trick here is, well, there's not a trick, but it hinges on the fact that neither of them are going to ignite the fire under their sacrifices. They're going to wait for, for a divine fire to come down and consume the sacrifices. And as I said, the Nevi'e Abal start working, feverishly dancing uh, around their sacrifice, doing anything they can to try and, and spark a, a response from Baal. The day starts dragging on and on. The crowd perhaps getting a little bit restless. And Eliyahu starts taunting them. Oh, maybe your God is asleep. Maybe you can wake him up. Maybe you should scream louder. Maybe he can't hear you, right? So he's, he's really taunting these prophets. They start cutting themselves for their blood to somehow spark a divine response, a pagan uh, cultic rite that is uh, forbidden explicitly in the Torah. And of course, the day passes and no dice, no response from Baal, no surprise there. Then it's Eliyahu's turn. He gathers the nation close to him, he rebuilds an altar that had been broken, uh, an altar to Hashem. He puts 12 stones together, signifying the unity of the entire nation, a goal uh, that, is, uh, that, that he's suggesting is, of course, once more possible. We can unite once more. Uh, and then he has the nation pour 12 jugs of water on the altar and on the wood. The number 12, again, gesturing at this notion of, u- of national unity, plus further demonstrating the miraculous nature of what was about to happen. He's, he's saying, you can even douse the wood with, with water and still my sacrifice is going to be consumed by fire. So he's elevating 
the nature of this miracle. And what's more, you have to remember, this is in the context of a three-year terrible drought. So this was a huge kind of quote-unquote waste of water um, if this doesn't, if things don't work out the way uh, he would like them to. If, if he doesn't deliver on the goods here, this is a massive waste of water. I'm sure everyone there was just horrified to see this water being poured out. And so in all these ways, he, he raises the stakes for this moment. And he, of course, brings in all this symbolism. He then offers his sacrifice to Hashem. He calls out to Hashem, the God of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, to accept the sacrifice and to let the entire nation know that he, with a capital H, is the true God with a capital G, at which point fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice. And of course, seeing this, the nation bows down and they say, Hashem, hu ha'elokim, Hashem, hu ha'elokim, which is something that we recapture at the end of Ni'ilah on Yom Kippur for reasons that should be obvious, right? It's, it's this moment when we're meant to be feeling that we have that kind of clarity. Just as the nation at Har HaKarmel were able to have this, this moment of absolute crystal clear clarity that Hashem is God, so at, at the end of Ni'ilah, we've achieved that kind of level of faith and clarity as well. Very, very beautiful, uh, beautiful connection there. So, Eliyahu has succeeded in winning over the nation, and then he tells them, grab the prophets of Baal and kill them right now, right? You should put directly into action your convictions. You're, you're feeling inspired? You have clarity right now. Put those convictions uh, right into action. Kill these Nevi'e Habal who are undermining our nation and our relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, and the nation does so. You'll note that Achav does not stop them. He tells Achav to go eat and drink, you know, kind of way of, of celebrating, and, uh, celebrating and accepting this, this moment. And uh, we find that uh, covenant ceremonies are always accompanied by eating and drinking, including that of Harsinai. So there's this kind of eating and drinking to demonstrate uh, an acceptance of, of what has just occurred. And then Achav heads to the top of Har HaKarmel, together with his Na'ar, with the young man who is serving him. They go up and there... Eliyahu beseeches Hashem, davening over and over that he should bring rain. And there's a very dramatic moment. We assume it's kind of a foregone conclusion, um, but there's this dramatic moment. Eliyahu is davening, and it's, it doesn't seem to be working initially. He keeps davening, and he's asking his, his na'ar to, to look out and tell him if any cloud is appearing, and he's davening, and finally, a very small cloud appears on the horizon. And just then, Eliyahu uh, informs Ahav to go and, and head home because he doesn't want Ahav to get caught in the uh, forthcoming downpour. Ahav then heads out back to his palace. And then shortly thereafter, uh, the skies turn dark, the heavens open up, and there is a, a major downpour. And then, right after that, something important happens. The parak doesn't just conclude. Uh, we're told that Eliyahu goes and he runs in front of the chariot of the king. Why does he do that? It's because at this moment, it seems that King Ahav has repented. As I noted before, he doesn't stop Eliyahu and the nation from killing Nevi'e Habal. He listens to Eliyahu when he tells him to go and feast. And then he again listens to Eliyahu when he tells him to go home before the rain starts. So he's displaying great respect for Eliyahu at the moment. And he seems to, to be on the right track. Eliyahu responds to that by running before the royal chariot, which is a display of respect for the king. 
He's showing him that while he may have been exceedingly disrespectful to the king up until this point, if the king chooses the right path, Eliyahu will throw his support behind him. And he is communicating, more importantly, to Ahav that it's not too late to change, that it's not too late to do tshuva, and whatever wrongdoing he had done before, if he corrects course now, even Eliyahu will run before his chariot, will show him that level of respect. There's just one step left. He has to tell Izabel. He has to tell him, honey, I'm home, and he has to tell her about her, about his exciting day, and he has to convince her that she should change as well, and that change is necessary. And as we will see, that won't prove quite so simple. That's it for today. Chazak ve'ematz, and happy learning.